Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our July 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. An alternative approach to traditional diagnostic assessments that use long clinical interviews is computerized adaptive diagnosis. In this type of assessment, individuals answer a series of questions until there is a high probability that they either do or do not have a particular diagnosis. In an NIMH-funded study, Robert Gibbons and colleagues undertook the task of developing a screening tool of this type for depression. They used an item bank of 88 depression scale items to construct the computerized adaptive diagnostic test for major depressive disorder, or CAD-MDD. The CAD-MDD is based on decision-theoretic methods, and unlike fixed-length tests such as the patient health questionnaire, it adaptively administers items based on responses to previous items until an accurate screening diagnosis can be made. The CAD-MDD makes a binary classification of whether or not the patient has major depressive disorder, and it also provides a confidence level in the classification. Using an average of four items, the test achieved high sensitivity and reasonable specificity for a clinician-based dsm 4 depression diagnosis in less than one minute. Relative to the currently used Patient Health Questionnaire 9, the CAD-MDD increased sensitivity while maintaining similar specificity. The existing literature on lamotrigine in adults with psychiatric disorders gets a review by a research group from UCLA. Citing the drug's rise in stature in the last 15 years, the authors review the available literature on the FDA-approved and non-FDA-approved uses of lamotrigine in adults with psychiatric disorders. Data were selected from 29 randomized controlled trials and 6 open-label trials, 10 retrospective case reviews, and 4 case series were summarized. The study received funding from UCLA. The review found that lamotrigine is generally well-tolerated, with most common side effects including nausea, headache, mild rash, and severe rash, occurring in less than 0.2% of cases in some studies. The best evidence for maintenance treatment was for bipolar disorder, particularly in prevention of depressive episodes. In acute bipolar depression, secondary meta-analyses suggested benefit, especially for more severely depressed subjects, although the benefits are likely to be small. Studies on lamotrigine have noted switch rates similar to placebo. In their conclusion, the authors recommend lamotrigine in bipolar maintenance treatment when 
depression is prominent. It also has a role in treating acute bipolar depression and unipolar depression, although more research is needed for unipolar depression. They also conclude that data are too limited in other psychiatric disorders to recommend the use of lamotrigine at this time. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a severely debilitating psychiatric diagnosis that impacts roughly 1% to 2% of adults. With the right treatment, OCD symptoms can be successfully reduced and often even eliminated. However, research has shown that impairments in quality of life and functioning still exist even after successful treatment. Therefore, the optimal goal at the end of treatment is to achieve wellness, that is, a combination of OCD symptom remission, a high level of life satisfaction, and the ability to function well in daily situations. Studies so far have struggled to determine how to evaluate wellness. One measure, the Yale-Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, or Y-Box, is a clinician-administered measure that assesses the severity of OCD symptoms on a scale from 0 to 40, with higher scores reflecting more severe symptoms. In this study by Ferris and colleagues, Data from four randomized controlled treatment trials at the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University were combined into one sample of 288 adults with OCD. The investigators utilized signal detection analyses, which allowed them to evaluate a range of cutoff scores on the Y-box in relation to patient wellness measures. The researchers aimed to identify a single Y-box score that could be used to detect when OCD remission, good life satisfaction, and high daily functioning were achieved. The results identified the ideal Y-box score to be less than or equal to 12. The authors conclude that this score should be used as a benchmark for researchers and clinicians and that this score ideally should be achieved prior to termination of treatment to ensure the best possible outcome. Although the impact of negative emotions on cardiovascular prognosis has been studied extensively, research on how positive emotions influence outcome has been relatively sparse. High levels of positive affect can be measured by affective descriptors, such as feelings of enthusiasm, energy, and interest, which can draw a picture of one's level of pleasurable engagement with the environment. To learn more about the potential association of positive emotions and protective effects, the authors of this study aim to examine whether positive affect is associated with improved survival and decreased cardiovascular morbidity independent of cardiac disease severity and depression, and to explore biological and behavioral factors that could explain this association. The study received funding from the Dutch Medical Research Council. The data were drawn from the Heart and Soul study, which received funding from the Department of Veterans Affairs, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, the American Federation for Aging Research, 
the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Ischemia Research and Education Foundation, and the Nancy Kerwin Heart Research Fund. The authors evaluated the association of positive affect with cardiovascular events and mortality in 1,018 patients with stable coronary heart disease. They did not find an association between positive affect and cardiovascular events. However, high positive affect was associated with a 27% reduction in mortality during seven years of follow-up. What's more, controlling for cardiac disease severity and depressive symptoms resulted in a positive affect that remained associated with improved survival. Biological variables did not seem to explain this association. However, the association between positive affect and survival became non-significant after the researchers adjusted for physical activity. The authors conclude that the improved survival associated with positive affect could potentially be enhanced with behavioral interventions that include exercise training. Long-term prospective studies beginning from onset of major depressive disorder with psychotic features across a broad range of ages are rare. Because the disorder may be unstable diagnostically, investigators systematically evaluated 107 hospitalized patients aged 10 to 82 years who met DSM-4-TR diagnostic criteria for psychotic MDD at the time of hospitalization for a lifetime first episode of psychotic illness. Subjects were followed prospectively over four years to identify predictors of diagnostic stability versus later change to other DSM diagnoses. Formal research examinations and extensive clinical data were used in the study, which received funding from NARSAD, NIH, and various foundations. Nearly one-third of participants later met DSM-IV-TR criteria for bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder. Factors that preceded a change in diagnosis to bipolar disorder included a history of impulsivity, meeting ICD-10 criteria for mixed manic depressive states at intake, and previous hypomanic symptoms. Later changes to schizoaffective diagnoses were predicted by previous functional decline, initial delusions unrelated to depressed mood, hallucinations of bodily changes and other schizophrenia-like symptoms, and meeting ICD-10 criteria for schizoaffective disorder. Among patients initially meeting DSM-IV-TR criteria for psychotic MDD, early indications of features typically associated with mood disorders or with schizophrenia-like psychoses respectively strongly predicted a later diagnostic change to bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder, whereas initial anguish, pessimistic delusions, weight loss, and not meeting ICD-10 diagnostic criteria for other disorders predicted stable diagnoses of psychotic MDD. 
The authors conclude that their findings support the value of attention to clinical details of past or presenting symptoms to improve diagnosis and prognosis for complex illnesses. Recognition of the importance of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids in human health and disease has grown considerably in the last few decades. Although lower levels of these essential dietary fatty acids have been found in major depressive disorder, less is known about omega-3 status and anxiety. Investigators study the relationship between plasma omega-3 fatty acid levels and anxiety in a sample of 62 healthy volunteers and 59 patients with major depressive disorder with and without comorbid anxiety disorders. As expected, depressed patients had lower omega-3 levels than controls. Additionally, it was found that within the depressed group, the lowest omega-3 fatty acid levels were associated with the presence of comorbid anxiety disorders. These results were not explained by depression severity, tobacco consumption, or demographic factors. The investigators also found that omega-3 fatty acid levels correlated negatively with anxiety symptoms across the whole sample. That is, lower omega-3 fatty acids predicted higher levels of anxiety symptoms consistent with a previous study in social anxiety disorder. However, small clinical trials have thus far found no efficacy of omega-3 supplementation in anxiety disorders. Further studies are needed to understand the relationship between dietary intake of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids and anxiety. This month's ASCP Corner Offering looks at the major revisions to the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder that are introduced in DSM-5. The most significant and controversial of these is the merging together of four disorders that were distinct under DSM-4. Autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder, and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified are now unified under the single heading of autism spectrum disorder, effectively eliminating the former distinct diagnoses. The revisions could have a significant impact on patients and families affected by autism spectrum disorder as well as mental health providers and researchers working in the field. The authors reviewed the changes and the rationale behind them and then discussed concerns that have been raised. As discussed in this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, the use of SSRIs during pregnancy has been associated with preterm delivery in many but not all studies. In studies that did find earlier birth after SSRI exposure, gestational age was two to six days less than in unexposed controls. Recent consensus is that neonatal outcomes may be poorer if delivery occurs even as little as two weeks before full term or 40 weeks of gestation. 
What a decrease of two to six days is might result from SSRI exposure be of clinical importance? This month's article examines recent data on the subject and gives suggestions on how to communicate the research to patients. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. Antipsychotics, especially second-generation antipsychotics, have been used off-label for the treatment of primary alcohol dependence. Until now, however, there has been no meta-analysis that comprehensively evaluated the efficacy and tolerability of antipsychotics in patients with primary alcohol dependence. In this issue, Dr. Correll and colleagues published the results of a systematic literature review of randomized placebo-controlled trials of antipsychotics in patients with primary alcohol dependence without comorbid primary major psychiatric disorders. They identified 13 double-blind studies, including nearly 1,600 participants. Patients were randomized to the atypical antipsychotics, amisulpride, aripipazole, olanzapine, or quetiapine, or to the typical antipsychotics, flupenthixol decanoate, or tiopride, or to placebo. The main finding of this meta-analysis is that both individually and pooled together, Antipsychotics did not differ from placebo regarding relapse prevention of alcohol dependence. Actually, placebo outperformed pooled antipsychotics with regard to the number or percent of abstinent days or lack of drinking days. This difference disappeared after removing one outlying flupenthixol decanoate study. Individually, Flupenthixol decanoate was inferior to placebo regarding abstinence or drinking days, whereas aripipazole was superior to placebo regarding heavy drinking days. Antipsychotics caused greater all-cause discontinuation than placebo, which was true individually for aripipazole and flupenthixol decanoate. Discontinuation due to intolerability was similar between antipsychotics and placebo, but aripipazole's risk was higher. Drowsiness or sedation, increased appetite, and dry mouth occurred more frequently with pooled antipsychotics than with placebo. In summary, based on the available data, there is currently no evidence to support the use of antipsychotics for primary alcohol dependence. Bipolar disorder is a lifelong condition that can be difficult to treat because patients experience a wide range of disabling symptoms over time. Moreover, many persons with bipolar disorder are at increased risk for heart disease due to poor health behaviors and treatment factors. But this risk is often overlooked because priority is given to the management of mental health symptoms. The SMART trial is a randomized controlled study supported by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the National Institute of Mental Health that was designed to test a new model of care that may improve outcomes for people with bipolar disorder. The acronym SMART stands for Self-Management Addressing Heart Risk Trial. 
patients from a VA hospital system in the Midwestern United States who were diagnosed with bipolar disorder according to ICD-9 and had at least one risk factor for cardiovascular disease were randomly assigned to life goal collaborative care or the usual Veterans Affairs services that included quarterly wellness newsletters. Life Goals Collaborative Care included four group sessions over one month that helped patients manage bipolar symptoms and adopt positive lifestyle changes related to diet, exercise, and physical activity. After these group sessions, the group leader contacted patients once a month by telephone to help support these lifestyle changes and to help coordinate care with their providers. After two years, patients receiving the life goal intervention had lower blood pressure levels and less disabling manic mood symptoms than patients in the usual care group. Findings from this study lend further support to the role of collaborative care models in improving physical and mental health for persons with bipolar disorder. This month we highlight a case report involving persistent genital arousal disorder. This case suggests that the disorder can be successfully treated and resolved with dipyramate in a physically healthy patient whose symptoms are not believed to be related to or caused by a clinically recognizable seizure disorder. In closing, be sure to visit us online for letters, book reviews, interactive activities from our CMA Institute, and much, much more from the July issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.